Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On this week's episode, we have Jess, Lauren, Lucy, Tess and Justin. So how do we get better at predicting disaster? Maybe we can do that by adding more randomness into our models. What about 3D printing cute and cuddly things? We also find out about fatigue and how that leads to changes in innovation in bridge and building design. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. So the world is inherently unpredictable, and that's really a problem if your job is to predict the world. And if you're in the stock market or in banking and finance, or maybe you're involved in weather modelling or predicting catastrophes or disasters, you really want to have a good idea of what's going on in the world. So you build a model, and models are great. We use them in all types of applications in our lives, from weather to climate to even how our water network works or our electricity. And these models are great, but sometimes they break. Sometimes they differ from reality um, because, you know, we, we, we fail to account for something or maybe we didn't get our model 100% right. But what some recent studies published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, they've actually found that um, having a mathematical model that allows for randomness actually improves the prediction of models, particularly models that are about catastrophes. So basically... They looked at models that are meant to be about predicting disasters. And then they found that, okay, well, maybe if we add some randomness to our models, some inherent uncertainty to the way in which our models behave, they found that doing that made their models more accurate than their models would otherwise be. And what they're suggesting is, is that, that maybe we need to missing some factors that can be approximated with randomness. Because obviously not everything in our world is random. Um, what we might think is random is actually caused by a number of factors that we can't easily understand or measure. Um, so it might appear that something's random in nature, but actually there's a lot of bunch of complicated functions that cause it to happen. For example, they looked at uh, one-dimension and two-dimensional explicit models uh, that are stochastic in nature, but basically they tried to give some real-world examples where a tipping point is in an ecological area. So um, basically they have an ecological area which will, will have some sort of rapid change in its or a disaster in its behaviour, maybe it will collapse because there's not enough water or it dries out or something like that, which will cause a rapid transition. And what they found is that when they started throwing in some randomization into it, they could actually more greatly produce when the thing would fail uh, or would collapse as opposed to otherwise, because sometimes the behavior and the vegetation or the moisture levels um, would be more susceptible to randomness. So they basically managed to smooth out their models from, from incorrectly failing or predicting a catastrophe when everything would normally be fine by actually throwing in some randomness. For example, maybe in the movement of cattle through the areas. Instead of them having them follow the same predictable path, which would cause your model to fail, but wouldn't necessarily how it would be in real life, um, by making them random instead of predictable, then the model performs better. Um, that's pretty much how often out the real world works as well. And it explains why sometimes the models can be improved by actually adding in a bit of the natural randomness that actually occurs. Essentially doing fatigue analysis, which I've recently learned is not something we actually cover in the core components of the degree. <laughs> oh, good. Um, so I know that now. 
Mainly yeah. because we don't know enough about fatigue to properly incorporate it into any of the third year units. What is a topic that causes failure on a massive scale in basically everything? We can't teach it to students because we don't know enough. No one. Except you know. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Teacher. Teacher. Well, what if the people who literally who've been doing like materials work for years who run our faculty don't know enough about it to teach it to us? Then I definitely don't know enough about it to teach it to anyone else. Yeah. We know it happens. That's basically it. Well, like fatigue is just this mysterious science. We, I, in my degree, because it was so hybrid, mechatronics is electrical engineering, mechanical engineering. Do kind of half of both, and some, oh. there's some software engineering, and magic happens. We do like the mechanical engineering subjects about fatigue and cardio because that's one of the really big things. Except we do it in the hand wavy, hey, look, here's a thing, learn about it way, and then that's never talk how, about it again. That's how everyone learns about fatigue because basically what we know about fatigue is sometimes when we apply cyclic loads to things. Cracks initiate and propagate, and then stuff breaks. That's it's it. bad. Don't do it. Okay, then. Like. <laughs> we, we, we try to avoid the things breaking. How do we know whether or not the things will break? We run these tests that are kind of not particularly accurate, so our safety factors are like half of whatever we get for the test, yeah. just to make sure stuff isn't in danger of breaking, probably, we think. Yeah, it's... If it's in the right environment, at the right temperature, for the right length of time. Yeah, we, we basically, like... <laughs> Most of engineering is teach, especially the, the uh, things like mechanical and civil or like, okay, here's how things go wrong and here's the force you need to do it, right? So for building, this is the foundation strength you need to have to hold it up. Then multiply that by all of these things, which their job is to be like, we don't really know, maybe it's not like that, maybe it's like this. And so you, then you add like a factor of a thousand by the time you're done. And that's why lots of things are made out of concrete. We could make it out of stuff that's more, more smaller and more thinly and efficiently designed, but we don't because we have no idea what happens. I, I mean that really loosely because as much as you want to empirically design the perfect world and system, you can't actually predict everything. So then you have to add factors. Our major problem is the It's not because we learned how to do something new and wonderful. It's that we, we had no got more confidence. We <laughs> We're like, okay, it's like Jenga. We can we can take <laughs> out some material here and some here, and the bridge won't fall down. Are you sure? Like yes. <laughs> I think it's it's really funny. Like, and it takes terrible accidents for people to learn. No, don't do that. 
Because even if you like have the perfect... That's why it's good we have computer modeling now. <laughs> yeah, yes, so we don't have to build it. Like, Actually, that's just increasing the number of ways we pull fabric out of stuff, because mostly you test that for can you remove material. Yeah. It's actually it's really good part of a computer modeling is that you don't build it and then you have to it's a real pain in the ass to program. But then you can be like, now oh, let's just put all these weird things happening on it and you go, ah, my bridge works. because um, there was a bridge that they built in the thirties, which is a not thirties, the fifties, which is a suspension bridge. And it was one of the new types of suspension bridges. And they're really excited about it. Um, except that they forgot to take into the account um, wind and cyclical car movement loading. And so what ended up happening is the bridge length that they had had a resonant frequency. Like, much the same way that a guitar string has a resonant frequency that makes a really nice note when you play it, because it vibrates in a cool pattern way. So did the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think I've seen the video of that. The bridge is just like, I'm just gonna move. Oh yeah, let's just, let's just move in the wind, man. Like, perfectly, the bridge was fine. It was like, standing up there, and you're like, I, is it meant to do that? No, I don't, think we, I don't think we intended the bridge to work like that, so they quickly closed the bridge and they said, rethink everything. <laughs> but this ha that happened in like the 50s, but that same thing happened again in 2000 in London. They built a pedestrian bridge, it's called the Millennium Bridge, and it was linking two sides of the bank of the Thames, and it looks really nice, and it's fantastic, except that um, what they failed to take into consideration is that when people walk, they actually tend to sync up into the same rhythm. So when you have a large crowd of people moving, they generally start to step in the same time. That's a really, really, really big problem if you have um, everyone walking on this really beautifully thinly engineered bridge that's hanging, floating above the water in London. So what actually happened with the bridge was when everyone stood in time, stepped in time across it, the entire thing wobbled like jelly and waved. And it's it it was fine. It was just like this bridge should have been doing. Yeah. Trying to get Yeah. So the the idea is that you have to also design your theory bridges to prevent soldiers marching in time to not destroy a bridge. But it was it's kind of people knew that this was a thing, but then this, yeah, it, it's it's really spectacular look up. I, I recommend YouTubing the Millennium Bridge. But what ended up happening is that this beautifully designed bridge, as all these people were crossing it for the millennium, nearly fell apart because it was waving so much because of everyone's synced motion that no one had actually considered that maybe that would do disastrous things to the bridge. Like my fun fact about the Millennium Bridge, it's the one that is destroyed in Harry Potter 7. <laughs> <laughs> what? It's the one that's the Death Eaters are flying through London. Um, uh, that's the bridge that gets uh, uh, torn into. covered 3D printing several times on this show, and it's got a lot of amazing benefits. It enables us to build things, to play around with, to visualise objects before we construct them, to make amazing artificial limbs for people who have lost hands or legs, to make amazing toys just to play around with, or, you know, to mess around with in space with 3D printing. But one of the most amazing things that we've been experimenting with now is moving beyond the plastic additive manufacturing method, which is what we currently do for 3D printing, which is basically we put layers of plastic and they melt together as we do the, each layer, and that's what we build the object out of. They've done something similar, but sort of coming from the other, other direction, 
in the Disney Research Labs using felt. And so what they've actually made is they've 3D printed something that's squishable. In fact, something that's quite cute and cuddly. They've 3D printed some felt bunny rabbits that are squishy, cuddly, and actually could make, with a bit of more artistic endeavour, some reasonable toys, which is much better than the very hard, rigid, uh, edgy plastic things that you can do with a conventional 3D printer. Now they managed to 3D print fabric. Well, what they've actually used is they've made an object that out of slicing away layers of felt and then gluing these layers together. So it, it actually then cuts out each shape into the perfectly designed thing for that layer um, and then adds that to the next layer beneath it. So you take your 3D object in the same math method, you build it up in layer by layer, except in the starting point here is not melting plastic, but cutting out an object out of felt and then stacking it together in this beautiful pile of very soft and cuddly fabric. Now, this is a really cool use of 3D printing and it supplements the other methods of 3D printing we have that work on plastic, with metal, and also even with woods. And it shows that 3D printing has a lot of way to go before we can use it for everything. But we're overcoming the boundaries of what we can and can't use 3D printing for and really pushing the frontier of what actually we can make with a 3D printer. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we found out about adding randomness to improve our models of disasters. We also found out about fatigue and crazy bridge design and how we can 3D print felt to make some cute and cuddly creations. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.